I'm going to read the text today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. Um, I'm going to read the last four verses. Beginning in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, this morning I'd like to just come and, and ask you, God, uh, you'll, Lord, I, I pray, Father, that as we gather together in the name of Christ today, that you would be glorified, uh, that your word would be proclaimed, and Christ would be exalted. I need your grace, I need your power upon me this morning, and I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. This is commonly called the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, has called his 11 remaining disciples um, to go to Galilee to, you know, to a particular mountain that Jesus had told them previously that after I'm risen, I want to meet you here. And he's going to give some instruction. Now, if you've ever wondered what the church is, what the church is about, what we're to do, whether it's the universal church or whether it's the local church, we are to do this right here. We are to go out and we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are to make disciples. And everything that is done in a church will fall under these two headings. We want to talk a little bit about that today. So as we get into this, um, he has called his disciples to go to this mountain. And if you're not sure about like where I get that, that comes out of Matthew 16:32, where he had told them he's, he's it's at the the Last Supper. But he says, after I'm risen, he says, I want you to go to the mountain there in Galilee. And there was a certain place. It doesn't really tell us where it was. Some people believe it's a certain one, but. The bottom line is this, he said, after I'm risen, and the funny thing is, they really didn't understand that, okay? They really didn't get the whole uh, conversation or the whole instruction after I'm risen, but they were told to go meet Jesus there. Now, it says in verse 17, it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, most commentators believe that this particular meeting with Christ there in Galilee on that mountain probably was referring to the 500 that's in 1 Corinthians. Now, that's not my point today to whether to say that's what it was or whether whether it wasn't. But what we know is this. It says, it looks almost like they were there at the mountain. And then it says, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And you almost kind of picture it somewhat Kind of like when Jesus came walking on the sea. They saw him, they saw what looked like him walking on the water, which would probably startle most people, especially in the midst of a storm. But it looks like probably a lot of them saw him and they worshiped, but some were still in doubt. Now, before we are too harsh on those who doubted, if you look in the last, the last chapter of the book of Mark, we'll just show you. A little something here. It says, now this is when Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. And after he had appeared to her and she had went and, 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 and told people that, you know, she had seen the Lord. It says, but in verse 11 of 16, it says, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe. And you skip down in uh, the next two verses, it's dealing with the two men that were on their way to Emmaus. And they had come and was telling them they'd seen Jesus. And it says, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And then in 14, it says, afterward, he, speaking of Christ, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of hearts, 
because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now, before we're too hard on any of those guys, folks, we talk about the resurrection like it's just something that's just there. We're talking about someone who was dead, who had been murdered, who had been killed and placed in a tomb, and now there are reports that he's up walking around and talking to me. Okay? I mean, we got to get kind of real there and just think, yeah, Mary, we knew she was nuts. We kind of had that feeling. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? See, we get in church and we kind of forget that that's a very big, emphatic point to the Christian world, the Christian life. When you go through the book of Acts, you're not going to find the gospel that we, as, as a, a, the general church in America, proclaims that Jesus died on the cross. You do find that, but you find the emphatic point is that he rose from the dead. Okay? Why is that the emphatic point? I don't want to get off my subject today, but why is that the emphatic point? Because, what? He was raised for a justification, but if we don't have a resurrection, folks, we don't have anything. There were two other guys that died on the cross, and they bled and everything else like him that day. That doesn't do us any good. One sinner dying for another sinner doesn't do much good for you. The one righteous, holy God-man dying in our place and rising up from the dead does a lot for us. Okay, so, they, some was worshiping, some were doubting, and then it says, and as Jesus came and said to them, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what, the first thing this speaks of is what? It speaks of Christ's deity. I mean, can you imagine, and, and it happens today, is there anybody on earth today that goes around claiming to have the authority of God? In our world today? Yeah. What's his name? The Pope. The Pope. He is the vicar. He is the voice of God on earth. Sorry. Nope. He's just a wicked sinner who is in need of hearing the gospel that he would be saved. Probably ain't going to make me very popular in a lot of circles, right? But that's the truth. No. All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. When you want to talk about the deity of Christ, just go, just go look at the fifth chapter of St. John sometime, and you're going to see things like, hey, the way that you worship the Father, that's the same way you're going to worship me. The way that you honor Him is the same way you need to honor me. A man making, just a mere man making statements like that is blasphemous. But Jesus did it in truth. And in perfection, and exactly what it meant, he is deity. Now, his humiliation has passed. His humiliation, the righteous dying for us, the wicked, being beaten, whipped, scorned, ridiculed, mocked, scourged, and crucified, beaten beyond recognition humiliated, crucified with common thieves in our place. But now he is the resurrected Lord. And all authority has been given to him on, in heaven and on earth and has been given by his Father. And then what does he tell us? He says, now here's where we get to the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That preaches well, doesn't it? And I ain't just a terrible reader. Got a little oaky twang. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Let's just stop right there for a second. If Jesus has all authority, and we're his disciples, and he's told us to go, what should we do? We should go. What does that mean? It's kind of more like as you go. You don't have to just take off. You know, Trevor went a while back. He went way overseas over to India. That's good. 
But folks, as we go, as we step out these doors, as we're going, he says, I want you to go. And what does it mean to go? Well, in Mark, he says, go into all the world and what? And preach or proclaim the gospel. As we're going, that's what we are doing. Now, he says, make disciples of all nations. Oh, man, to make disciples... To make disciples. What are we making disciples of? Do we make disciples of ourselves? We, we live in a, in a world today here in America, and that's the only one I can deal with. Because I, I went to Ireland a while back, and you know, they're, a, they're a, a, you know, a country that's up to date on you know, technology and everything like we are. They speak English, we speak English. But you know what? They're a little culturally different than we are, okay? I mean, even the way we speak English, the accent isn't the same, and even the phrases aren't the same. And I, there was one night I was, lit, me and Randy was at a pub, and we were listening to some traditional Irish music. Yeah, did the pub thing startle you? That's just part of it, folks. You know, that's just part of being in Ireland. And so, as this guy would say something, it would take me about a five to ten second delay to figure out what he just said to me. And then when I would talk, it looked like it took about the same. There was a whole lot of what? What? Even though we're all speaking English. So here's the thing. When we're dealing with culture and making disciples, are we making people to look like us? Is that what we're trying to do? Are we going out and, and trying to, to make people look like me, and then that person is going to make them look like what they learned in me and so forth? No, we are trying to be disciples of Christ, and we're trying to go out and proclaim the gospel, the gospel. And when people are saved, we want them to look like Christ, not me. Trust me, one of me is plenty for this world. Okay? We don't need no more of me. Now, that all sounds easy, doesn't it? Let's just go preach and let's make disciples. You know what? They're all out there waiting on us as it is. They're just waiting on us to go out and proclaim the gospel, Chris. And they're going to just say, Chris, teach me. I want to be a disciple of Christ. It's not quite that easy, is it? So what happens? What happens? Here's something I've been hearing lately from a good friend of mine, one of them that said some things like this. I heard somebody else. I can't remember where it was. But there's these terms that go something like this. You know, the, the church just isn't impacting the culture. Anybody heard something like that? Or the church needs to engage the culture. Kind of the same thing, a little different. But kind of, you heard them things? I have too. Now, when I hear things like that, I'm not the quickest guy, but it gets the old wheels turning. And I start thinking, wait a second, to impact the, is the church impacting the world? Well, I, so what I did was this. I just kind of looked up these main words in here. The word impact, you know what it means? It means the effect or impression of one thing upon another. Now, my question is, should the church have an effect or an impression on the world. It, it absolutely should, shouldn't it? Okay? To engage. Now, there's a few different, different, uh, different ways of defining that. One is to attract or, or to win. Another one is to involve oneself or become occupied. And another one is to enter into conflict or battle. I want to ask you something. Should the church be engaging the culture? And if so, which one of these? Well, I'll submit to you this. How about all three? We should be out there not so much trying to be attractive to win people to us, but presenting the gospel, presenting Christ, that He is attractive, that people would be one to Christ. We should become involved with people out there we should become occupied and we should also be ready to enter into conflict into battle every one of these things you're going to find out our lord and savior did now here's the word culture word culture 
This comes out of the American Heritage Dictionary. It's 1985. It was uh, my one and only almost year in college. Is my dictionary from then. It says, The totality of socially transmitted behavior patterns, arts, beliefs, institutions, and all other products of human work and thought characteristic of a community or a population. Hmm. So, based on that definition... What is the American culture? Let's just break it. Let's bring it a little closer. What is the culture in your particular area? What is our culture? I have a question for you. If you look out, just generally speaking, of what we call the American church. Now, let me just say this. We've been teaching on the church here on Wednesday nights. And we started with this. How do you define what the church is? Well, the church is that collective group of all believers of all times that make the body of Christ, right? Old Testament, New Testament, that's what I believe. But you can break that up into two things. You can talk about the universal church. The universal church is the one that God knows who his people really are. That's the universal church, or sometimes called the invisible church. Not that we're invisible, but the real church, the ones that it really includes... That's who that is. But then there's what we call the local church. Okay, and the local church is what we see. In Ada, Oklahoma, I know about 15 years ago, it was reported there were 77 churches in Ada. 77 different. I think that was just inside Ada. And so when people that are unbelievers look at that, they say, well, there's that church and that church, and and they'll say things like, well, which one's right? And when y'all figure out who's right, then I'll come and join, you know. Stuff like that. You hear that kind of stuff, right? So, for this argument, we just have to include that. But my question is this. When we're talking about the local church, the church that people see and will call, hey, that's just a church, my question is, who's making an impact on who? We're supposed to go impact. We're supposed to go engage. Who's making the impact? Is the church having an effect on the world or making an impression? Or is it the other way around? What am I saying here? See, here's the thing. A lot of people will say, the church just isn't, it just isn't impacting the world. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Whether you want to go and be biblical about it or you just want to go, you're making an impact. You're having an effect. What you're doing when you're going out and you're not being biblical in your approach with an unbelieving world, what you're telling them is Christ really isn't that magnificent. He's really just a lot more like you because I'm his disciple and me and you ain't really no different. And so by that, what we're doing is we're teaching an unbelieving, an ungodly world that is going to hell almost at the speed of light that you're okay. Because there's not a lot of difference between you are having an impact. You are making an impression. But you know what the unbelieving world says about you? You hypocrites. You ain't no different than me. You ain't no better than me. Is that true? Another question. If the church is to engage the culture, do we, uh, based on those definitions, do we try to attract? Do we try to win it? And how do we do that? Do we send out questionnaires? Do we send out things and say, hey, in this area, this general area, what can you tell me what your most of y'all, what y'all's, the, the, the majority of it, what's your favorite type of music? You know, do you like coffee? Do you like tea? Do you know, what, what is it you like? We're going to build a church that appeals to your carnal flesh. And then we'll dupe you somehow into becoming a Christian. Is that how we attract? Is that how we win? What about, do we involve ourselves or do we become all occupied with the culture? Folks, I'm going to get into something that may really kind of ruffle your feathers a little bit. Based on the definition of the American Heritage Dictionary, what is the culture we live in? Now, here, in today's Reformed circles, there seems to be one culture. And they all hang out at Starbucks or like places. They all dress in... And I never get this right, so Kaylee Joe may have to help me. I accuse people of being hipster, and she goes, that's not hipster. I'm like, well, those sure are some skinny pants there. 
Is that a, is that a culture? Yes, it is. But what, but here's the thing. What we find is we find more and more people that want to dress like that. Now, folks, you're never, ever, ever going to see me in a pair of skinny pants. Not bought that way. The only way that happens is when the dryer's too hot and I'm putting on too much weight. Okay, that's the only time you'll ever see me in what we might call skinny pants. But see, even in that, are we still not letting somewhat the culture affect us? Now, there's always going to be people that, man, they was just brought up that way. That's fine. But to think that we need to, to, to dress like or to be like a certain part of the culture... That's, that's just wrong thinking, folks. Okay? I want to tell you something. Nobody ever engaged the culture like Christ. But he didn't become like them. We hear, we hear modern-day Christian songs, and we kind of like them. You know, there's a line, I always butcher lines. I can't understand lyrics anyway. But it's this guy. It's a, I do like the song. It's one of those Amazing Grace songs. Guy's got a gravelly-type voice. You probably know who I'm talking about. But he talks about Jesus probably wouldn't hang out with that religious crowd. He'd probably hang out on some bad street like in Memphis. I don't know what the town. Um, okay, those things get a little out of context even in songs. Did Jesus go amongst the publicans and the sinners and the prostitutes? Yes. Was he hanging out with them? No. You will always find Jesus leading. You will always find Jesus saying, follow me. You will not say, hey, man, what's going on today? He's shooting a little craps. What are we doing here? You don't find him hanging out like that. No, he always set the precedent. Those people wanted to follow him. They wanted to be like him. What we're finding is we're hearing songs like this. We're going, yeah, man, I'm going to go hang out with them. I'm going to look like them. Really? You really want to look like the culture? Well, give me some volunteers. There's some Amish folks that we might want to go hang out with. Anybody up for dressing like that? It's, it's culture. If I'm going to be able to relate to them, I've got to look like them. Get me a top hat and a black coat that looks like the buttons are going to pop out and injure somebody. Yeah, we laugh at it because nobody wants to dress that way, do we? Nobody wants to do that. What about... Native American culture. Here we are in Oklahoma. What are we going to do? Is that a culture? What about the biker gangs? I mean, I don't know how many times I'm out, you know, riding my bike, and I've got leathers and stuff. I can look pretty cool. But it's like, in order to be a biker and be a Christian, I've got to be with the CMA and then there's another group that says the CMA is way too liberal, man. They're not strong doctrinally, so there's this other group, and I forget what they're called, but they're solid doctrinally with their leathers and everything. What about the druggies? There's a culture. The LGBT, if I've got them letters all in the right order, I think you know what I'm talking about. There's a culture. What about the arts culture? What about the Muslims, the Latinos, the gangs, the prostitution? What about the hillbillies? These are all cultures inside our culture that makes up America. You don't have to dress like a hillbilly to go and be relevant to the hillbillies. Do you know, a few years ago, Paul Washer, we was at a, it was a youth uh, conference. It was out in uh, Tennessee somewhere. And... And during the break between, uh, you know, between sessions, you can hear some music on, and it's rap music. Folks, Paul Washer is the keynote speaker. Now, if you don't know who Paul Washer is, he's pretty much a modern-day Puritan. I mean, that's kind of what he is. And here's this rap music, you know, boom, boom, doing all this stuff. And, you know, people are all thinking, like, eh, this is Paul, you know. Well, when Paul Washer gets up, he says, well, this is, I don't know. Listen, some of these things I still struggle with. If you got a name, use it. I love that about Dylan. Dylan Chase. That's his name. So I don't know if it was Flame or whoever. Okay, I don't know. But what had happened was Paul had gone to a conference that this, these rap artists and hip-hop guys in Chicago 
He's a little he's a little weary until he gets there and he finds out it isn't about that outward thing they're doing. But he saw what was on the inside. And they were going out and they were proclaiming the gospel. And they were reaching the culture. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not about trying to be something cool and relevant to get people to come. It's about being who you are, being real, and proclaiming the gospel. I don't stand a chance in rap. I can't even understand words in normal songs. I don't, I, I don't have a chance. Here's an interesting note. As I was doing this study a while back, as I looked up the word culture, now when we say culture, that definition is pretty good, wasn't it? I mean, it's pretty accurate. But in 1828, the word culture meant this. It meant the act of tilling and preparing the earth for crops. Now, wait a second, that sounds like cultivate. No, this was the word culture. That was one definition. And another one was the application of labor or other means to improve good qualities in someone or something or to cause growth, such as the culture of the mind. And the last one I wrote down was any labor or means employed for improvement, correction, or growth. Almost every one of the, the definitions had to do with agriculture. Now, that's, that middle one was a little different. So I had this idea. Here's the, here's the, commi the commission. Our Lord, the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, I just talked a little bit about America. When we get into all nations, what kind of culture are we going to get involved in there? I was listening to a message the other day by Bodie Bauckham, and he's talking about why I'm moving to Africa. And he's talking about all these apologetic books that we have on how the argument on this or this or this. He said, how many of them do you see in America that's on animalism? How would you defend that? How would you argue that? Well, they're going to deal with it in Africa. They're going to deal with things there. It ain't about um, trying to always just you know fit in like that, but it is always about going and preaching the gospel. Folks, when we look around, listen, in all these, these, these different categories, whether it's the cowboy culture, the Native American culture, the bikers, people that are on drugs. I shouldn't have wrote druggy. I was in a hurry. But lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgenders, arts, Amish, Muslim, Latino, gangs, prostitution, hillbillies. There's more in every one of those types of cultures. There are lost people. There are people who are hurting there are people that sometimes I've heard this testimony. I laid in bed at night knowing I was on a road of destruction and I didn't have no idea how to get off of it. Had no idea how to get off that road. It takes the church submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ to go and do what? Proclaim the gospel, the message of Christ. Churches today, listen, these are the two primary things that God has told us to do. Now, under discipleship, it involves a whole lot of teaching on a whole lot of different subjects. Some of those subjects are how to go and evangelize. You will find churches who will go do every kind of humanitarian work. They'll do anything they can except this. And you know what they say? Boy, this, that, that stuff's old. That's, it just doesn't seem to work in our time. 
You know, I mean, that, listen, a lot of people getting more and more all the time. We're seeing more and more street preachers all the time. Some of you, when you hear that term, you're like, please don't ask me to go do that. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm not going to tell you to go do that. I'm not going to tell you to command for you to go do that. But for you that feel like going and doing that, I'm going to tell you, go, go do it. Go do it. My wife struggled with doing these types of things. I mean, we went, we'd go to Bricktown, and I knew she was scared, but I was trying to encourage her. I don't think I'm always the best encourager. But I, I handed her four tracks, and I said, just give these out. I think she came home with three. And she told me later, she was, she was kind of about to cry, and she said, I hate doing that. She said, I want to share the gospel with people, but I hate doing that. It wasn't her cup of tea. So we was praying about it. Next thing you know, some, some JWs show up at the house. She sent them ladies packing week after week. I mean, they weren't used to somebody like this. She, she was cleaning a house for a young lady that went to the Catholic Church here in town. It was very humorous in a way. This girl's trying to tell my wife about, you know, hey, you ought to come. And she don't know her own religion. My wife said, I think you're talking about this. She'd go, yeah, that's it. And she, Donner, she says, you know more about my church than I do. <laughs> you know? And next thing you know, she's, God's putting people in front of her, and she's sharing the gospel with them. You can call yourself a church. We can pack in a lot of people. We can be right doctrinally and we we can we can be have we can believe reformed theology. Just think about that for a second. Reformed theology. What a silly title. Now all that is is somebody from the time that Jesus died and the apostles went out and then some several hundred years later, somebody got way off track. Somebody kind of got it back and they said, hey, we're going to reform this. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. There is no such thing as reformed theology. There is simply theology and there's wrong theology. But for lack of People catching on to what we say a lot of times, we've got to say, well, we fall in the camp that we're reformed in our theology. It is not like, here's one option, here's another option. No, that's simply theology. That's just what it is. Now, so how are we going to impact and how are we going to engage the culture? One of the questions is, was we ever even told to do that? Well, we're told to go, and in doing that, we are going to impact, and we are going to engage. We're told to go. And so here's what I kind of came up with, just a little title. I'm not very good at this stuff, but I thought this one's kind of cool. How are we going to 1828 culture the 2015 culture? 1828 is the Webster's Dictionary that says we need to till up. We need to turn those rocks up. We need to work, labor, and get that thing tilled up to where that good seed can go in the ground. Basically, we're like, how are we going to cultivate the culture? There's really four things we do. The first one is prayer. If we're Christ's disciples and we're going to go and make other disciples, then our desire should to be should be to be like Christ. In Mark chapter one, verse thirty-five, and then on through thirty-nine, but in thirty-five it says this: It says, "In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed." You'll find in another passage where it talks about him praying. It, I think it, it, in the middle, at night time, and you're going to find one place where it says he prayed all night long. Folks, when I think Jesus went out and prayed, I think he went out and he was there for a while and he prayed. Now, probably the most important thing that stands out to me about this 
is the fact that if anyone ever walked this earth who probably didn't need to pray, Jesus would have been the one. And yet, I read where he's praying in the morning. I read where he's praying at night. I read where he's praying all night. And I'm just going to shoot straight with you. We don't pray enough as a corporate church. That is something that isn't something we just need to just continue to say, hey, we ought to get together and pray. No, folks, we need to get together and pray. Everything that you think you've accomplished in the name of the Lord that required little or no prayer is probably not anything worth accomplishing. Do you, do you follow me on that? If you can accomplish things without prayer, then it's probably not worth anything. The things that take much time in prayer are the things that are precious. And why is that? She's not in here right now, but I've never seen a baby get excited like, like Paul and Reagan's little Genesis. That kid, I mean, from when she's little, I mean, now everybody's scared of my tanner being around her, okay? Because he's like, you know, Ugh. you've never seen a baby get so excited when that guy would come in. He'd be going, ah, he'd just... She would, her eyes would do this, and she'd start flapping her hands. She was excited. Why do I mention something like that? Let me tell you something. When we are down on our knees and we're praying, God open doors. God move in this way. Listen, He's putting those thoughts in our minds and our hearts, the things to go do. Does, do, do we just think we're just going to go down this paved road all the time? No. He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to be seeking Him diligently. And then, when God opens those doors that seem like it was impossible to be opened, we're like Genesis. We're going, whoa! You know what I'm saying? And we're going, how did that happen? You don't ever see the apostles going and doing things without prayer. They started in the upper room in prayer. They were praying until Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And all that praying was preparation. And then Peter preaches a message. And what do they do later? They come together and they pray. When they got threatened and beat the first time and all this, and they said, we were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They, they got together and they said, Lord, why did the heathens rage and all these things? And it says, and they prayed in the place where they were staying. It shook. And they went right back out and they were proclaiming the gospel. I don't really want to be involved in a church that's negligent in prayer. Now, we all got busy lives, Right? If we're so busy that we can't mark off a time for prayer, then we are, we are too busy and too busy in the wrong areas. Just, that's all I'm going to tell you. We've got our priorities mixed up in a bad way. Plain and simple. In Luke 11, 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Interesting note. Do you know that the disciples never went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to preach? They never said that. But as they saw him praying in a certain place, they came and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Have anybody ever been through that? Have you ever had that question? Lord, teach me how to pray. Have you ever found your prayers that you were the, fo the, the sole focal point? Oh, Lord, help me do this. And Lord, help me get that. And Lord, help me. And then you realize you prayed a long time and it's all me, me, me. Lord, bless my wife, my kids, you know, the church, blah, blah, blah. Kind of like that. Well, how about you move you off the top of the list? And put you down here and pray in a manner somewhat like this. You start and you exalt and you thank God that he's God. And that he's in control. And he saved you by sending his son to die in your place. You miserable, worthless sinner, right? And he saved you and made you, calls you blessed, calls you holy. Says you're righteous in his sight. 
And then you start making your petitions for those that are in need around you. And then if you have time, bring your request to the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to make light of that. We definitely need to be praying for things. But let's get it in order. Let's put it in order. The next thing is this. We're to to evangelize. This is where the Great Commission go. Go and preach. Go and proclaim. In, uh, In the book of Luke... Sorry if my glasses on my head kind of weird you out. That's what I do a lot. I forget. In Luke, the last chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 44, he says this. This is Jesus speaking. He said to them, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Boy, wouldn't you love those moments? I mean, great. And and said to them, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He says, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He tells them right there in in the book of Luke, you're to go out, that that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. What is one of the biggest agendas today? You get these preachers on these talk shows, and the topic at at hand seems to be about homosexuality. And I've seen more than one. I'm not going to bring up no names. I'll probably pick on your favorite guy or something like that. So I'm not going to do that. But I have seen more than once when they say, are you saying that people that are gay, that they're going to hell? Are you saying they're in sin? And, and, and the Christian, the first step is he steps back and goes, well, you know, we've handled it wrong. Well, I'm not exactly sure who they're talking about, first of all. I don't know what that even means. I, I don't know if I've ever handled it wrong. My position has not changed 10 years ago to where it is today. So don't include me in your paintbrush stroke there, pard, you know. I'll tell you that. But they start like that. When, when the real simple answer is this, my message to whether it's people in that lifestyle or people in any kind of lifestyle, if you want to put a category, but primarily if you're a person who is lost, my message to you is always the same. My message to you is always the same. And then, listen, here's where the culture of the world gets in. They tell us that if we say things like that, we're haters, that we, we have this hate mentality, we're terrorists and all these things. Folks, they've been saying horrible things even before Christ came. They spoke evil of Elijah, and they spoke evil of Elisha. And David, I mean, they spoke evil of Christ. They're going, they spoke evil of the apostles. There were a lot of things that were said that were not true, you go through history, I mean, they, they said a lot of horrible things about the church, the, the early church fathers. It's not going to change for you and I. Just because the world tries to tell me that I hate those people, that doesn't mean I hate them. One of the things that's very important on all this, and I probably should have put it before, is you need to, you need to get right now, determine your mind, what is your worldview going to be based on? Do you have a biblical worldview, or do you have a secular postmodern type worldview that's going to dictate your the sum of how you view everything in life is your marriage based on the bible or is your marriage based on dr phil okay is 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 the way you raise your children is it biblical or is it based on that guy that wrote a book a long time ago can't think of his name oh spock yeah yeah that guy i don't even know nothing but but point is this, now if he based what he taught on the scriptures, then okay, but if he didn't, don't go there. It's not, so you, your, your worldview is going to determine how you do these things. If you want people to come to church, is your 
view based biblically or is it based on what the statistics, what the modern business-minded world has on how to grow a business or anything? There are certain steps you can take. You follow what I'm saying there? So then he, in, in Acts 24, he tells us we're going to do that. Now look in Acts chapter 1. I mean, Luke 24, he said that. Now turn your Bible over to Acts chapter 1. And look what this says in 1.8. Now he just told them they were going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sin. They are going to do it in all nations. And here in Acts 1.8 he says this. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He gives four things there. And when we see these things in Jerusalem, basically covers chapters 1 through 7. Judea starts in 8.1. There's a little part where it says and when the persecution really started getting heavy in the church in Jerusalem, they scattered. It says they went to Judea. Right after that, it says they went to Samaria. 1 through 25 of chapter 8 deals with Samaritan believers. And then in chapter 10, we see the house of Cornelius, which would represent the ends of the earth. It would be those outside of that. And that goes on to present day that we live in. Okay? And we're still left with the same question. How do we go and do this? Well, we pray. We go preach. And then we make disciples. What we do is not based on numbers. Okay? What we do is not based on success is not determined by how many people fill up this building. Okay? Success is defined solely on this. Are we being faithful and obedient to what Christ has told us to do? Noah, we know for a fact that Noah was a preacher of righteousness because the Word of God tells us that. He preached for 120 years, and the only people that stepped on that boat with him was his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight. Based on the mentality of today, Southern Baptist Convention would probably have to put him on probation. Not enough baptisms, not enough people coming in, things like that. We're going to have to have a business meeting. Right? The bottom line was this. Noah was faithful and he obeyed what God told him to do. So, folks, when we're going out there and we're doing these things, do not base it on what we're doing ain't really cool. No. You, listen, you've got two options here. You can either try to be pleasing to an unbelieving world and try to please them, or you can do things in a manner that you say, I'm going to do this to the glory of God. I want to please him above all things. Regardless of the regardless of the outcome, regardless of what happens in the end, I am going to do it the way God has told me to do it. And so, when we look at making disciples, one thing to keep in mind is this. And I'm going to try to be quick. I know well, it's only eleven thirty. Listen to this. Um, in Matthew chapter sixteen, just to, just to show you something. We talk about disciples. Matthew sixteen twenty four. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that all sounds really cool, doesn't it? I guess my point on what I'm trying to get through here right now is this. If we're going to go make disciples and we're disciples of Christ and we're going to go out and preach a gospel and somebody comes and starts asking questions and we say, Hey, man, I'd love to see you become a disciple of Christ. And they say, Well, what exactly does that entail what all does it require to be a disciple i'm thinking i'm liking this well here's what you're going to have to do you're going to have to uh, deny yourself what do you mean well now uh, you're not going to be number one in your life the american dream no longer yours no 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 the american dream it's anti-christ okay no no now you're going to deny yourself you're going to look to the needs of others you're going to look to what god wants out of your life Anybody heard of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? He was a doctor, a brilliant doctor. You know what he did? He laid aside his medical practice and became a pastor in a church. Why? 
Because God says, I don't need you doing that. I, need, I want you doing this right here. Deny yourself. And he says this. He says, I need you to, uh, to take up your cross. Now, contrary to the culture we live in, I should have put that down, the cross-wearing culture. You know, shirts, necklaces, tattoos, probably some other things in their head. You know, I mean, like shaved in their head, something. That's retarded, okay? That's wearing an emblem of death around. Now, I know we, we look at the cross for what we remember by but most of the people wearing crosses are not Christians. It's just a cool thing. I said this a while back, and I'll say, we don't, I guess we don't use electric chair no more, but today it would be like wearing an electric chair necklace or, or tattooing it on your arm or something like that. Why would you have an electric chair on your arm? That's what people back in the days of Paul would have said. Why are you wearing a, a garment with a cross on it? It's an emblem of death. What it meant was to take up your cross meant I'm going, my life today is I'm going to die today. That's the way you're living your life. You want to be a disciple yet? A call to salvation, to come to Christ, is an invitation to say, come and die for me. That's what that is. It's not, well, I'm going to leave that one alone. And he says, and follow me. Now, we all want to follow Christ, don't we? Don't we? I've prayed that prayer so many times. Lord, teach me to walk in your footsteps. So the way I visualize my mind, walking in the footsteps of the Lord. And one day I heard my prayer. And I said, Lord, do I really want to walk where you walk? Do I really want to go around the people that you went around? Do I really want to get my hands dirty and reach out to the unlovely. I don't know what we picture when we follow Jesus. He wasn't going where things were popular. He wasn't going where everybody loved him. He was going to those that the righteous crowd said, What are you doing with them? He's invited to a Pharisee's house. The guy customarily should have gave him a kiss, a greeting. He should have had somebody, if not himself, a servant, wash Jesus' feet while they're visiting. I don't really understand the culture, the times, but it's kind of like people just kind of came and went. Kind of like an open door. I don't get it. But a woman comes in, a prostitute most likely, doesn't say a word, but she stoops down at his feet. And she begins to kiss them. And she begins to cry. And her tears are getting on the feet of Jesus, and she takes her hair. You know, in the Bible times, a hair represented a woman's glory. She took her glory, and she started wiping the tears off his feet. And this Pharisee says within himself, if this man truly were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman touches him. Jesus says, I've got a question for you. He says, ask it. There were two men... One had committed a lot of sins, and the other guy hadn't committed much. But yet, or there's a debt, you know, we just, I kind of fast-forwarded. He said, neither one of them could pay, but the Lord of them forgave them both. He said, who do you suppose would be more thankful? And he said, I suppose him that was forgiven the most. And he says, you've answered correctly. I bet he's feeling good, wasn't he? He got the answer right. And he says, when I came into your house... You didn't give me no kiss. You didn't give me no water for my feet. But this woman, she came in and she has continually kissed my feet and washed them with the tears of her eyes and dried them with the hair of her head. You've answered right. Are you hearing me today? To follow Jesus, to walk where he walked, are you willing to be his disciple? Because if you're going to go out, you're going to be his disciple, and you go out and you proclaim this, this is kind of what you're going to have to tell people what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Disciple of Jesus is not, let's sit around and just debate doctrine all day. No. That's okay. 
sharpen each other, but if that's all you do, get a different game plan. Okay? Luke chapter 9. I just want to really pour this one on you so you, you get it. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. He says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, He said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Remember? Anyone who wants to be my disciple, follow me. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing to live in a manner where you may not have a place to sleep at night? What if God calls you to India? Not the best living quarters all the time, is it? And you had it pretty good. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Jesus told him to follow him. But he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the, let, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go proclaim the gospel, uh, kingdom, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Do you know why he says, first let me bury my father? you know why he said that? This is to all the people who are waiting for retirement to start serving the Lord. See, to bury his father meant, I'm finally going to get my inheritance. I'm going to be good. I'll follow you then. Sorry. Retirement can wait. On following Christ. Christ doesn't need to wait for your retirement. And then he says this. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You want to be a disciple? Just for time's sake, I'm not even going to Luke 14. But I am going to just tell you the start of it. There was a great multitude following him. That's, that's how we know we have a successful church, right? whole multitude following him. Jesus turns around and says, Oh, yeah, by the way, unless you hate your mother and your father and your children, and more than me, you can't be my disciple. <laughs> Didn't make it to that uh, church growth seminar. And what happened? The multitude left. They said, Who can hear these things? What is he talking about? Yeah, let me explain that. You can't even love your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or whatever it is. They don't take precedence over Christ. The cost of discipleship. You say, well, that seems pretty high. Really? Well, the cost for your salvation didn't cost you anything, but it cost Christ his life. So your discipleship is not higher than that. Now, if you want to pay that price, just don't be a follower of Christ. You'll pay that price. But you'll pay much more in the end than you will in this life if, if the cost of being his disciple. I promise you that. Not to even mention the reward at the end. Now, when it's talking about making disciples, we read in Acts chapter 2. I'm, getting, I'm, I'm going on too long, so I'm going to try to hurry. In chapter 2, uh, basically, after Peter preaches and there's 5,000 saved, um, it says they continued in the apostles' teaching. Okay? So when we're talking about discipleship, we read in Acts 19 where Paul had went into Ephesus, had went to the synagogues and preached, and then it looks like he probably set up the first seminary for two years in the house of a guy named, a school of a man named Tyrannus. Disciples came. They taught Paul was sending them out into the parts of Asia. They were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what we have. We have, we need a prayer. We need prayer in our church. We need to be evangelizing. We need to be making disciples of Christ out of these people who are converted to Christ. And then fourthly, and this is an area that I am completely foreign to. I have never been involved in a church that grew to the point that we were able to plant other churches. Now, I've helped plant churches, but it did not stem from coming out of a church with the whole picture in mind of this church has grown, and now we're going to take people out of this church, and we're going to establish them there. We're going to take out of the, out of the multitude, we're going to take some and put it over here, and then... We want to see that church grow and replicate the same thing. And how does all that work? 
Well, it comes from praying. It comes from going and evangelizing. It comes from discipleship. And then it comes from planting churches. Real simple formula, isn't it? Look what he says to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And the whole epistle is a pastoral epistle of Paul instructing Timothy on how to remain at the church that's been planted there. He's left his star pupil to maintain the church, to have oversight of it. Same thing as in, in Titus 1.5. He's left him there so that he would uh, ordain elders in his church, that it would be established and all this. Is everybody with me today? You know what I'm really talking about today? I'm talking about our church. This is what our church needs to be doing. I've got a lot of ideas. I've got a lot of ideas. I talked to Paul Priest the other day. He says he's in San Antonio. Not at Conway's church, but the one that planted Tim Conway's church. He was in that one. And you know what they're doing? They go out and they sectionalize these neighborhoods. And they send them out two at a time. And they cover four, eight blocks, whatever it is. And they hand them a a pamphlet of the church. They hand them a gospel tract. They get a a gospel of the book of John. uh, I mean, a book of the gospel of John. And they, they, you know, whether anybody's there or not, they just leave this package there. I mean, it's, it's like a gift. If people are out, they visit with them. And I thought, why can't we do that here? Would anybody be up for doing something like that? We've got nursing homes where we just shelve our older people and we just forget them. We've done one in Paul's Valley for a time. we really looking pretty, pretty shameful right now. We forgot to tell them we're not coming back. That's pathetic. We've got nursing homes over here where people, nobody tends to them. Is it a glamorous work? No. Is it an easy work? No. God said this. He said, pure religion is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Those people are lonely. Their minds ain't all right. But I can promise you this, God hadn't forgot them. God hasn't forgot them. We've got troubled teens out here at Rolling Hills. Tyler's building a fence. they got a guy standing over. We have to fence them in like caged animals. You know what? They charge the fence. I mean, while you're standing there working, they're charging the fence, trying to go over it. It was a weird thing. Do you Listen, folks, do you think somebody ought to go try to take the gospel there? Guess what? They're going to graduate soon, and they're coming near a town where you're at. Do we think it's needful that somebody could take the gospel to him? I don't mean to sound angry. I'm not. But this church, we're excited. We've Two churches have merged together. There's a lot of excitement. Listen, folks, this is not the time to go, wow, we've, we finally got here. No, this is the time that we group together. We try to equip. We need to be doing more corporate prayer. We need to be doing more individual prayer. Another idea I've got, a brainstorm. I've talked about this kind of stuff for a long time. I'm scared. You know why I don't do these things when I'm scared? You'll be the freak of the neighborhood. We live in a rural, out, we live in the country. Here lately, our neighborhood, we thought was some dope dealers. This lady is talking to my wife about, we need to be praying for her, you know. I'm praying for him. We're going, she's not afraid to tell us she's praying. I thought, you know, maybe once a month I could just tell the whole community where I'm at, hey, I'm going to do a Bible study at our house. We're going to have some food. Y'all come over. You want to talk about discipleship? Where do you live? Go out. Just invite people. You don't got to bombard them. Just say, hey, we're going to have a little Bible study. Talk on the Word. We're going to have some... We're going to cook out a little bit. We'd just love for you to come. We might just be like Genesis and be amazed at what God does. We might just be amazed. Would you bow your heads with me? Holy Father, we want to come before you today and just ask you, God, that you would uh, look down upon us. 
I always have this fear when this is over, Lord. I just come across like I'm angry and such. I hope that's not the case. I pray that in spite of me, that, that the message of your word, God, that it has penetrated our hearts and our minds. And I pray, God, that you would convict us to move. If we're not doing it, God, help us do it. If we're doing it, help us to, to, to open doors and more to where we're at. And I just want to thank you, God, for today. I feel convicted myself. I know where I'm, where I come short in this. We pray for more grace. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit on our lives in your work. <coughs> to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.